Welcome to the Maximus Podcast with your hosts, Joe Sabula and Bobby Maximus. Today's episode is sponsored by 10,000. www.10,000.cc. Use the code Maximus15 for a discount on some of the best clothes on the market. Also check out Lalo Tactical, www.lalo.com. Use the code Maximus50 for half price shoes. Get the last remaining stock of the Maximus shoe, the grinder, the Bloodbird, the Zodiac. Hook yourself up. Uh, tell them that we sent you, but Maximus 50, get a big discount. And now that the bills are paid, I am really excited to announce our latest guest, Akshay Nanavati. Akshay, we go uh, back a number of years. Um, yes, I've, I've taught you a seminar. Mm-hmm. You are one of the few people that has trained in the Church of Bobby Maximus, my garage <laughs> gym. And uh, we've we've stayed in touch a number of years now. Now, I know you really well, and I've filled Joe in, but can you tell our listeners just a 30,000-foot view of who you are and, and why we would have you on this show? Sure. Yeah. Like I'll kind of fill you in a little bit about what brought me to where I am today and what I do with this brand Fearvana. And that's kind of the essence of who I am is the, the ethos of Fearvana. And what led me to it, it kind of began when I moved to the U.S. at a young age. Soon after moving to the U.S. at 13, I got very heavily into drugs, into alcohol. We used to cut myself, burn myself in a very self-destructive way of life. Lost two friends to that lifestyle. Thankfully, I got out, though, and joined the Marines. Uh, after watching the movie Black Hawk Down, I decided to join the Marines. And that's when I started to find the beauty in adversity, in engaging stress, engaging adversity, in engaging suffering. And from there, from joining the Marines, I went mountain climbing, cave diving, cross, uh, cross-country skiing, rock climbing, like you name it. Kind of nature became my playground to explore my my own limitations and ultimately push past them. Uh, then in 2007, I was deployed to Iraq as an infantry Marine, where one of my jobs out there was to walk in front of our vehicles looking for bombs before they could blow up our convoys and kill me and my fellow Marines. So once again, you learn how to thrive in the face of fear and adversity, but came back from the war, struggled, was diagnosed with PTSD. I struggled with survivor's guilt from losing a friend out there, uh, started drinking heavily, was battling depression until one day I was on the verge of suicide. And Hitting that low moment, that rock bottom, like that was my climb out when I started researching neuroscience, psychology, spirituality to learn how to master my own fears and reframe my own experience of struggle. And that ultimately led me to everything I am now, everything I do now with fear of Anna and the idea that fear or any at, at a kind of a meta level suffering of any kind can lead us to bliss and enlightenment. And ultimately, it's not something to be demonized. And my life experience of the research kind of taught me all of that. And so now I run ultra marathons. Uh, I spent seven days in darkness recently. I still climb mountains. I do very intense things to push myself and help others achieve their own state of fear, Vana, by engaging their own fears and ultimately delving into suffering, which is why I obviously resonate so much with you and your ethos as well. All right. Well, I, I appreciate that. I, you just brought up a bunch of questions for me. Um, First of all, what possessed you to join the Marines after watching Black Hawk Down? Like, was it literally you just watched a movie and decided that was the life for you? Or was there a deeper um, meaning behind it? Because it seems kind of uh, spontaneous to me. I I want to add on to that because of all the movies that I would assume would inspire somebody to join Mm -hmm. the Marines, that would not be the one that I would pick first. (laughs) So I'm super curious as to what it was about that 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 led sure. to that because that's quite a turnaround right there. 
Yeah, that movie, I mean, it, that movie planted the seed right after watching that movie. I then read the book Black Hawk Down and just started devouring book after book on military and life in combat. And the particular scene in that movie, so it sounds like you all have seen it. There's this scene where Gary Gordon and Randy Sugar, they're in the chopper and they volunteer to go onto the ground to set up a defensive perimeter, knowing that thousands of armed enemy personnel are heading their way to set up a perimeter to protect one of the fallen Blackhawks and, and a soldier that was in that. Michael Durant was in that in that uh, chopper. And they ultimately just two of them, they uh, you know, they did. They had no idea when reinforcements would arrive. And so ultimately, two of them died. But Michael Durant, the guy they died protecting, is still alive today as a result of their actions. And they posthumously received the Medal of Honor, which is the highest award for valor in the U.S. military. And just watching that was kind of mind blowing to me. The I mean, it was awe inspiring, the kind of courage it takes to make it voluntarily make a decision like that and sacrifice your life for somebody else. And so right after that, you know, that's when I started devouring the book and and what sort of triggered me, you know, like this life I was living was a very selfish and meaningless existence, right? Like drugs, not caring about anything, let alone myself, not caring about what I was doing to my family, to myself, to anything. And I mean, I had multiple dumb things I did that could have easily killed me uh, back then. But that like watching that made me think about and kind of question this life I was living and wonder, would I have that kind of courage? Would I be able to do something like that? And uh, so when, when, after kind of getting to a point of, you know, devouring enough books, I decided to find out. And, and so pretty much overnight stopped doing drugs, decided to join the Marines. It took me about a year and a half to get in because I have a blood disorder that two doctors told me would kill me in boot camp. So I had to sort of fight my way into the Marines. I have flat feet. I have scoliosis. So I have all these genetic flaws <laughs> that uh, that I had to like get medical waivers for. And had it not been a post 9-11 military, I don't think they would have let me in. But this was, you know, wartime military. And here's this young, dumb kid fighting to go infantry. So <laughs> let's, uh, you know, let's find a way to get him in so another another question i have akshay and you and i are way beyond the point of me having to be polite with you um, we've we broke bread before uh we talked about various marital problems we both had uh we shared personal things so i can just just talk to you like i talk to any friend if you will of course you you joined the marines you have this blood condition mm-hmm. you decided to walk in front of trucks looking for explosives with yeah that's heat, that's that's basically. my question real quick um, was, was that your choice or is that the role they gave you it wasn't a choice. It was. Uh, it happened to be the role. Uh, the role they gave me, which I had no problem with. I kind of went out there with a very dark mentality. I had lost a friend into the war already, so I went out there not expect. Like I, I was ready to go if something if something had to go. I was like done. Let it be me. And so it wasn't. It wasn't a very healthy mentality the way I went out there. That's why I'm asking with the stuff. Like it sounds to me, you had a death wish. You know. So initially, like. Not initially. So when I first joined the Marines, I wouldn't say that. Like, I just knew this was my path and, and, and nothing like it didn't matter to me what the doctor said. I, I, I mean, again, it could have killed me. Obviously, I don't know. But I knew this is what I had to do. But the thing is, like, not only did I survive, like I thrived. I graduated infantry school as the honor graduate in my platoon. So I loved it. I absolutely loved it. I thrived there. But when I did go out to Iraq, I did I mean, I wouldn't say it was suicidal, but I went out there like to give it some context here. Here's why. When I first joined the unit after coming out of boot camp infantry school, I got very close to a buddy of mine in the unit. Corporal Jake, well, became corporal, but Jacob Neal. And we became very close. We were like brothers. We did everything in the unit, in the training together. But whenever we trained, I would on the rifle range, for example, I'd beat him by a few points or in a run. I'd beat him by a few seconds. Hmm. And so. 
we did everything together and we kept volunteering to go to war together. I mean, we joined as infantry Marines. We wanted to go into the crucible of war, if you will. I mean, that's partly even why I joined it. I don't mean to sound like sort of a war junkie. And admittedly, there was very naive perspective on war. But when you like the experience of war brings out the very worst of humanity, people do awful, like atrocious, horrible things. But it also brings out the very best. You see things like people sacrificing their lives, jumping on grenades for somebody else. And I wanted to experience the extremes of the human condition at that level. So me and Neil kept volunteering every chance we could get. And twice the Marines told us we would go. Last minute, they canceled it. And one summer, while I was out vacationing in India, he finally did find a unit to volunteer with. And because he was a good Marine, he got promoted to corporal. And so what happened was he was in a seat that because he was a vehicle commander, he was a corporal, I got hit with an IED, a, a bomb, and he was killed. So I really, I mean, to this day, it still, it still shows up from time to time. I struggled with the fact that I should not have been off vacationing that one summer. And I should have been there in, the, in, in, in country and gone there with him. And it should have been me that got in that promotion. And it should have been me that been in his seat. So he, he could have come back home mm. to his fiance. Now, again, rationally, I get that, you know, war, you can't predict that. Like, think I could have still gone with him and he could have still died. I could have still come back alive. But emotionally, it did not change the fact that I st- struggled with that guilt. So when I finally got my chance to go, it was I got called up to go to Iraq about two months, two to three months after he was killed. I said I, I went out there with this mentality. And again, admittedly naive because you can't control where bullets fly in war. But went out there with the mentality that if somebody has to die, let it be me. And uh, I mean, like I gave away all my stuff before going to war, which uh, which made it very awkward when I came back. <laughs> yeah. But uh, but uh, but yeah, that's kind of why I went out there with that mentality. There was no fear of death. There was uh, a willingness to accept it if it came. Wow. Um, and then so there's so many things here, Joe. I'm kind of like actually dumbfounded a little bit for the first time. Um, so then so then you get out and you hit a real low point again. Yeah. So what happened? So, sorry, sorry, go ahead. No, no, no. I, I, I want you to talk about that because yeah. it sounds like you you went in and it's almost like the Marines were your salvation to a degree. Yeah. And then it got taken away from you and now you had to cope in the real world a little bit. Yeah. Joe, you talked about this one of the last podcasts about if this is your whole life, what do you do when it's gone? Yeah, we were, it was actually, How we were talking about cope? Hurt Locker because um, mm. just the, the scene, the guy, I mean, it's like super intense scene where he's trying to defuse this bomb and like, there's all this stuff going on around him and he's so hyper-focused and, and the tension is just like, you can taste it. It's so heavy. And then it just cuts to him in a grocery store, like shopping for cereal. You know, and, mm-hmm. it, and it's just like the, the difference between being mm-hmm. in that in that yeah. zone and in that moment and in that intensity. Like you said, I mean, you're 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 in the, the highs and the lows of humanity. And then it's like back to the real world. Boom. Yeah, that's one of the things that makes it really hard to come back. I mean, there is war is a very addictive experience. It's a very addictive experience. So when I came back, I mean, after coming back, I was volunteering to go back again. I, I came back and went to finish to my uh, finish my senior year in college, and I kept volunteering to go back. I could not handle this world, you know. I mean, yeah. I came back to college, right? So, and now now I have a sort of different level of self awareness. But at the time, I can't like I can't blame the college student for having the awareness they had and not having the life. Experience 
experience that I had had. So it, inevitably they look at the world differently. So you, but you, but from my point of view at the time you come back, they're complaining about a, a lot of dumb shit there. You yeah, know, they, yeah. it's a different worldview. So I kept trying to go back to Iraq, but back to Afghanistan once again, did not get my chance. So what I decided to go, do was go back to war as a combat journalist. And so I went to go get my master's in my master's degree in journalism with the intention to go back to war as a journalist. And like, I wanted to become a combat photographer or, or a freelance combat journalist. And, uh, and then I met my now ex-wife, but I met my wife at the time. So that plan kind of changed, uh, got a corporate job for a year and a half. Um, but at this point, like I was drinking, like a college student and drinking over weekends, but it hadn't hit a tipping point yet. What happened was I said, like the day I signed up for my corporate job, I actually signed up for this trip to uh, ski 350 miles across the world's second largest ice cap. So like, so basically I knew exactly what day I would quit my job. So a year and a half later, I quit my job, ski across the ice cap, come back, start building a business. Now, all of a sudden what happens is with no college, with no job, with no intense expedition, like skiing across an ice cap, with all of those structures gone, now I have to create structure myself. And if mm. you're not creating your structure yourself, that's when the demons rise up, right? With no external structure imposed upon you, the military structure, the job, the, the these intense like expeditions, climbing mountains and skiing across ice caps, th with, without that external structure imposed upon me, that's when the demons started to rise. And slowly drinking on a Friday led to drinking on a Friday and Saturday. Right. Then it would be th three days, four days. I mean, I was at a point in my life that I would drink a bottle a day, mm. literally drink drink till I pass out and wake up and drink again and just uh, do that until, you know, until my body just couldn't take it anymore. And slowly that hit a moment where after these sort of five day binge sessions, I, uh, I woke up one morning and was about to just be like, like my mind was kind of like this pattern is never going to end. So what's the point? And I was about to kind of walk over to the kitchen and pick up a knife and slit my wrist. And it shot that like that moment shocked me. The fact that I would even think about take my own life because I had this vision of who who I was and that was not it. You know, even though I was kind of doing these things, I, I, it shocked me that I hit such a low that I was seriously considering taking my own life. Mm -hmm. And that was kind of the start when when things started. I mean, it wasn't like a magic aha that magically everything got better there because I still kind of drank after that and I still, you know, fell. But that was the starting point that led to the climb out. Wow. Wow. And so you have this you have this climb out. How did you plan for that? Because it, it seems a lot different to me than than planning a workout, yeah. um, planning like a like a trip plan. I'm not trying to trivialize it, but it's like I I can't relate because I've never been in that place. I mean, Got you. actually, I can I can talk about my struggles. I lost my dad at 20. That mm. seems trivial to me compared to even though it was a big thing in my life. It seems trivial compared to compared to what you you went through. I fought in the UFC, but, and I, I remember the nerves associated with that and how hard yeah. it was to make it. But again, that seems trivial. Like, I, I think I'd have an easier time making the NBA right now than, than dealing with what you dealt with. And so I can't even relate. So where does somebody even start to pull themselves out of that? Did you, did you have a mentor? Did you go to therapy? Uh, I, did, did you just come up with a plan? You know, there was there was def there was no plan formulated per se. I was uh, seeing a therapist at the time. So what actually led to me like sort of being diagnosed with PTSD by the VA. So, again, to be very frank, what was happening was my wife and I had a great, great marriage at the time. And but we got to a point where I was struggling physically, like sexually, and it wasn't uh, anything physical. It was a psychological issue. So my my wife was kind of like, let's go find out what's going on, you know. And uh, so that's when she said, let's go to the VA, started seeing a therapist. 
And what, what was happening was every time I would leave the, ther- the therapist, I would drive almost almost you always go straight to the liquor store. And I mean, again, I take responsibility for my actions. Mm-hmm. But as I started hitting the low, I and it started then and then started looking at what, you know, initially the client was like, okay, let me just figure this stuff out. Like, you know, I started reading books, started looking at personal, getting deeper and deeper and deeper into personal development and every, every facet of it from psychology to spirituality to neuroscience of the brain. And what I started to learn was that the, the therapy, like while the therapists of the VA were great human beings, great people, like they really cared, they were just operating from a really bad playbook. And so I started to kind of figure things out myself. And I'll give you an example of what I mean by that. So I was diagnosed with post-traumatic stress disorder, right? And examples of what they said were symptoms were things like I struggled with crowds. I was jumpy with loud noises. I had like deep survivor's guilt. And these were all things that they said were symptoms of PTSD. But what I had come to learn was that these were symptoms of post-traumatic stress, but there's a distinction between post-traumatic stress and post-traumatic stress disorder. They are not the same. And by adding the word disorder to it, we demonize the experience as if it's something wrong, right? Like right. disorder. That's the nature of the word. But the reality is my brain had learned to say loud noises equals death because it spent seven months in a war zone where it had to be very alert to loud noises. That's not a disorder. That's a normal human response to war. Same thing with survivor's guilt. Same thing with being wary of crowds. So as as I started to learn all this stuff and stop kind of demonizing the experience of post-traumatic stress, that's kind of what led to the, again, the ethos of Fearvana is that the experience of suffering, of stress, of struggle, of fear, it's not something negative. Everybody frames it as something negative, you know, like fear is bad. Don't be scared. Be fearless. Stress is bad. Suffering is bad. Adversity is bad. Even guilt. We often frame guilt as a negative emotion. And I was running away from it. That's what led to my, led to my uh, drinking. But as I started to research all these things, I had to go face that deep. And I had to go into it and understand it and explore it and deal with it and not try to run away from it in the therapist's office. And everybody who knows me, loves me, cares about me. They're all kind of like, you know, don't feel guilty. It's not on you. It's not your fault. And like, again, rationally, I get it. Right. But the reality is emotionally, it didn't make it go away. And so until I stopped demonizing the guilt. So as a very concrete example of reframing the experience of suffering for a long time and only recently have I changed the words on this. But for a long time, I had a picture of Neil and me up on my wall. And it said, this should have been you earn this life. And that's a very intense thing to look at. But my guilt became my ally. Guilt was not a bad emotion. It was an emotion. And every emotion, every experience is not bad. It's not good. It just is. And so kind of the awareness of that, the acceptance of it allowed me to reframe it into something useful and stop demonizing it, which we collectively do. And that's that's the fundamental problem is the demonization of suffering of any kind, not the suffering itself. So would it be fair to say then that you believe the actual act isn't important or the the incident isn't important? It's how you deal with it. So what you're saying is if you have an experience with fear, you have an experience with guilt, you that's not bad. It's how you potentially deal with it and how you deal with it could be good and productive and fuel or could be negative in terms of taking over your life. Absolutely. Would that be a, kind of a fair statement? Yeah, absolutely. Now, yeah, I, I'm seeing. I'm, see, I'm just seeing a lot of the the neurocircuitry of fear here, right? Because like the the, yeah. the picture of your buddy up on the wall saying this should have been you, like that has the potential of just beating you down every time you look at it, unless you're challenged by that. You know, unless you look at it and you're like, you know what, I I have to do something with what I've got now. 
Exactly. If, if you don't have that piece, like, holy cow, that's that's like some heavy shit right there. Yeah. And, and, yeah. and your point is really valid, Joe. So actually, I just recently changed it because it worked until it didn't, you know, right. like kind of what got you here won't get you there. So recently I've changed it because the guilt was going it was taking it was it had gone far enough and uh, yeah, and it was yeah. kind of going too dark. So I recently changed it to honor his death, earn this life. So a very a, like few words shift, but a huge shift in what that really means. So it kind of worked until it did not, you know, mm-hmm. and uh, and you have to kind of have the self-awareness to understand like what's what's going to work for you. I mean, again, because that is a heavy thing to look at. It is a very heavy thing. But that drove me. I mean, that's what helped me finish writing a book to sober right. up to to do something meaningful, because like I realized that it's not on me to waste this life anymore. It's like I have to do something with it now. And actually, on a quick side note about that, it reminded me is, you know, 10 years after the war, I, my staff sergeant told me that when we were in Iraq, our vehicle drove over an active IED and for some reason, God knows what, it did not explode. And I didn't actually know this. I must have missed the debrief that day or what. I just huh. never heard that until my staff sergeant told me. So it was kind of like it was a humbling moment to think about that and to think about everything that I had been approaching it about, like, you know, why am I here kind of thing. But uh, but absolutely, you have to kind of choose how you frame the meanings and and explore, explore the darkness in your own way and then kind of choose what you make that mean and how you're going to let that shape you. Well, and I think to, to keep exploring it, too, because like you said, it what worked for a while didn't work all of a sudden. Exactly. So you, you have to keep engaging it. You, you It's not something that you you fix once and then you're done with. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's a huge kind of flaw in the personal development. It's like this, you know, one magical thing, aha, and a silver bullet and your life has changed. It's like a constant battle, a constant relentless fight of self-awareness and uh, and kind of engaging that self-awareness, taking action, seeing what's working, seeing what's not and seeing when when something no longer starts to work. So, yeah, it's a relentless process. And and I think that's the, that's why you have to keep going. I mean, on the one side, yeah, of course, do the things that are sort of light, explore joy, explore. Yeah. It's like this duality. You got to explore the darkness and the light and but the, the the challenging part is going into the darkness, which a lot of people don't do because that's the hard part. Yeah. And when you go there and like Carl Jung puts it beautifully, he says, one does not become enlightened by imagining figures of light, but by making the darkness conscious. And mm. I love that. Yeah, I love that. It, this this actually this part of our conversation reminds me of Bobby, because, Bobby, you you had all your your self doubt in that, you know, backstage at the Mandalay Bay and you went and you saw your shrink and you thought you were cured. Right. But like he's saying, like that that worked that day and then mm. it didn't work anymore. And like you had to keep engaging that and keep being involved in that and facing that and, and constantly digging even to this day. No, yeah. that's 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 absolutely true. Now, Akshay, I have another question for you, and I don't know if I know the answer to this. I know a lot about you. Yeah. But when you talk about how the playbook at the, at the VA was kind of off, mm-hmm. right? Just from my own training and experience, mm-hmm. it's very possible you had PTSD from the war. That's true. But you also had psychological issues or something going on, some kind of trauma going into the military. Have you been able to isolate what your I'm going to call it a childhood trauma is like mm-hmm. the root cause of everything? 
You know, I have uh, looked a lot into that world in my sort of continued process of self-awareness. And I didn't, I mean, like my had great parents, could mm-hmm. not have asked for better parents. They loved me, put me in the best schools. Uh, and per- perhaps part of it is there's a sort of this nature versus nurture debate, right? Like, I mean, I was always this kind of person. Like I remember when I was a kid in Bangalore, India, playing rugby, whenever I would get cut up, like the, I loved those scars. You know, in Singapore, I remember I used to run on rocks barefoot just to test myself and to kind of push myself. And so I, you know, like, and my mom has asked me, you know, what could they have done differently? So I hadn't gone into drugs the way I did, because again, like they were not, not even remotely bad parents, like great parents. And the thing is, I, I happen to, and again, I take responsibility for my actions, but you're a young kid who's very like affected by your environment. So I happened to get into a group of friends and I was the person who to this day is kind of pushing the line of the extremes. Right. So I was either running on rocks or, so when we got into drugs, it was me and one of the guy who's first started going into harder stuff. And that guy ended up ODing. So he's no longer alive today. So that could have easily been me. Right. So I don't know if there was trauma per se, but I think some part of me, perhaps nature was always looking to push the edge, push the line. And like for a little while, I just got caught up in a very negative environment around that. Like I always told my parents, had I found a group of ultra runners, I probably would have started ultra running much earlier, yeah. you know? Yeah. Um, so I just, I think that was it. And then the problem is, I mean, which kind of turns to your point, uh, uh, Bobby, about like, um, the, the meanings we create, you know, we live in a world that creates paradigms around suffering and trauma. And there's actually a great example. Of this. So Dr. Uh, Dr. Mark Seligman, he's a positive, one of the researchers of positive psychology. He went into West Point Military Academy and he asked the cadets, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic stress disorder? And it was like 95 percent of people raised their hands. And then he asked them, how many of you have heard of post-traumatic growth? And it was less than 5 percent. So the problem is that's become a self-fulfilling prophecy that trauma equals uh, dis- like war equals disorder or trauma right. equals disorder. And that's how I fell into that trap. And that's the same trap when you were talking about like the, 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 the bad playbook of the VA. It's we've created that paradigm that I mean, to this day, when people hear I'm a veteran, especially in America, there's almost this. And, you know, I kind of get that it's coming from a place of love, but there's this pity like, oh, poor you. You're probably messed up in the head, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. And that's a flaw. Like trauma does not have to equal disorder. So I think by shifting paradigms is which is what I've done now is that like now, you know, like there's there's like a positive relationship to the experience of trauma and suffering, however it shows up. And that's kind of developed over time through all of this. So, yeah, I don't know if there was a childhood experience. It was just kind of the paradigm that I had been built into and that and that society is built into and how we view adversity of any kind. Yeah, and, and the sense. reason I say that, Akshay, is is because my my experience as a police officer, and obviously I'm, I'm not going to talk about being at war or anything like that because I can't relate. I've I've never served. I've worked with a lot of tier one military assets yeah. in the United yeah. States military, but that's a lot different than being in active service. Let's make that very clear. But I always wondered with police, there were various police officers I worked with and some intense situations such as uh, – Finding a dead kid in the field, mm. dealing with a sexual predator. Um, I actually had a buddy who went into sex crimes and it really messed him up. Um, after two years of spending time in internet chat rooms trying to lure out predators and stuff, yes. he was a different person. Like they got a completely different thing. But I've always wondered the difference between a person who is what we call. Uh, well-balanced, no psychology issues, no trauma, no whatever you want to call it, how they deal with the situation versus someone who had a pre-existing condition. Does that make sense to you? Yeah. And I think I think sometimes 
we look at what's wrong at the moment. Like, well, he went to war and he came back uh, with PTSD. It was obviously the war. I, I guess, does that make sense what I'm saying, you guys? Like in terms of, yeah. mm-hmm. I wonder how much people look because I wonder if there is, and I suspect there is, a difference between how two people deal with the same situation. I would totally agree. Like me and my Marine buddy have talked about that a lot too, that we wonder like to what degree a lot of us are, you know, like <laughs> we kind of joke that I was, I was out of my mind before I joined the Marines, you know? So <laughs> yeah. like in many ways that like before I joined the Marines, I was free soloing up rock walls. You know, I would climb 60, 70, 80 foot rock walls with no rope. You know, I was climbing mountains in the Himalayas. I fractured four bones in three months from skydiving and rock climbing. So I was doing very like, intense things before I even went to war. So I totally get what you mean. There were certain mindsets about me that probably made me much more conducive to the response that uh, led me like that led to my response post-war. So I totally think that like a lot of what happens before shapes our response after as well. Well, and almost being predisposed because there yeah. is that thing in psychology too that you need to figure out what the root of the cause is. Yeah, you know, it's 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 similar, Joe, to a to a person that's dealt with an eating disorder. The root of the cause is often not that that yeah. person wants to be skinny. Yep. It's usually yeah. like a depression or an anxiety, and it's manifesting itself in a, yeah, in exactly. a need to control yeah. the body. And so yeah. you need you need to figure out. It's not about like you'll never be skinny enough. You need to figure out like exactly. what happened to this person or where did it come from. And so that's that's super interesting to me. Now you back to the kind of timeline you start crawling you know out of this I'm, yeah. I'm i'm saying crawling because it was you know yeah. really difficult for you absolutely and you started uh fearbana so tell us a little bit more about about that you wrote a book you've been on all kinds of uh incredible podcasts uh i mean the dalai lama wrote a wrote a, wrote a forward or endorsement from your book which is insane to me um oh and, and by the way if you could if you could email me his cell number after this I gotta talk to him. Um, i'm having a hard time with 19 covid and you want to get him on the podcast advising people so if you could do that for us but explain to us how this crazy world came about yeah roger that you know so after i started kind of started researching a little bit myself it obviously initially was just to navigate my like my own healing you know to have navigate my own darkness but it kind of led me on something and as i was kind of figuring all this stuff out i realized how flawed we are in our collective approach to suffering and so that's what you know i obviously i'm not the only person in the world who struggled we all are going through it in some way or the other so it led me to then sort of re- realizing i got to share this with others and share the insights i was learning because the fundamental problem and it kind of touches on what you were saying about is 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 kind of how we enter into the experience of trauma is you know, like our world has created such a flawed conception of suffering, of pain. And so anybody, regardless of the nature element of how we're born, we're born into a world that demonizes fear, that mm-hmm. says we should be fearless. And that is the biggest problem. So I created Fearvana as a, as a way to combat that mentality, to help people look at fear as not something bad, not something negative. Because right now what happens is there's so many quote unquote experts, you know, out there in the personal development world who will say anxiety and, and even 
even the biggest names in the industry, they will demonize anxiety, say fear is bad, we should eliminate stress. And what happens is when somebody then feels these things, they, they think there's something wrong with them because, you know, Joe Schmo expert here said that I should not be anxious. I should right. not be scared. And that's the problem. So I created Fearvana to help people develop a positive relationship to the experience of not just fear, but as the highest level suffering itself. And when you do that, like that to me is, and research would back this up, is the most important skill to master is to develop a positive relationship with the experience of suffering of any kind. And so that's what the ethos of Fearvana fundamentally is, is how do you develop that relationship and then use that to do what I call find, live and love your worthy struggle. So I call it your worthy struggle. Like that's your path in life. I don't like that term, follow your passion. I think passion for what you do is a good thing. But especially when you speak to younger kids, they, the idea of following your passion conveys this notion that if I follow my passion, you know, life is going to be sunshine and unicorns and rainbows and it's going to be great. You know, if I love what I do, I'll never have to work a day in my life. I think that shit is garbage. It's nonsense. Like I love what I do. I know y'all do, but it's a fucking hard sometimes. It's really hard. And, you know, and but that's not a bad thing. So I call it your worthy struggle. How do you embrace that struggle worthy of who you are and who you want to be? And Firvana, the idea of it is turning our suffering, turning the struggle into an experience of bliss by walking that path, whatever it may be for you. So that's what eventually led to the book. And, uh, now a whole business around that concept and finding my own kind of the experiences of fear of honor. So getting back into the outdoors, uh, running ultra marathons. So I still, I still do things like, you know, running ultras, climbing mountains, but now I do it from a very different level of consciousness than I was back in 2012 when I skied across Greenland for a month. Back then I was just running away from my demons. I was doing everything possible to run away and to go into these extreme environments where I did not have to face them. So today, again, I'm not doing it as a way to run away. I'm doing it as a way to explore something greater so uh recently i spent you know i, I was in norway for a week skiing uh doing a, a cross-country polar a cross-country skiing polar expedition i ran like 80 miles around a 0.2 mile loop for 20 hours a few months hmm. ago I spent seven days in darkness so kind of exploring whoa, whoa, my own back, back up can you can you repeat that you ran what 80 miles around a 0.2 mile loop so 400 laps something's wrong with you <laughs> thank you oh, that sounds to me like the worst thing it's like running around a track 900 times yeah it was a it was psychological torture you're just going you're just you're looking for stuff to to, to test yourself talk, no, talk to, talk to me about the the darkness thing because this intrigues me yeah, that. So, what kind of inspired it is, uh, as as you know, Bobby, I went through a pretty challenging divorce, uh, not last year, now the year before last, and kind of navigated that. What happened when I did is I ended up breaking my sobriety, and I obviously did not like that about myself. So I, I was like, okay, something's kind of missing. I got to go deeper within. And uh, you know, I had confronted my fears in so many different contexts, and I kind of realized the big thing I was still kind of avoiding was stillness. And there was a there was a huge fear of stillness. So. I chose to like like <laughs> everything I do look to confront that fear in kind of the most extreme way possible. So I ended up stumbling into this idea of a darkness retreat, and uh, it, uh, I was originally going to go into these silent retreats, these vipassana meditations, which right. they're a little bit more popular. But I didn't know such a thing as a darkness retreat existed. But I stumbled into it, and I was like completely sold. And uh, the value to me of going into darkness is when you're in complete darkness. So this is seven days, twenty four seven darkness, isolation, and pit, and you know, and silence. The value in doing that is there's no like in unlike a silent retreat where your eyes are open, you're you know, you're around people, you're still seeing things in darkness. There's nowhere external for your consciousness to go. So you can't like look at a wall and sort of say that's a wall, right? Like there's nothing external for your consciousness to attach onto. And as a result, you have to go deep within. And that's a deeply profound, obviously extremely intense journey, but 
very, very profound. I mean, it was one of the most profound spiritual experiences of my life, like incredible is this, experience. Is this something that you'd recommend to people or are there would, people there that, that scream and freak out? <laughs> you know, I mean, ultimately you're not like trapped in there, right? So you can, <laughs> you can get out. My military buddies were kind of laughing. They're like, dude, you know, we torture people this way and you're paying good, like thousands of dollars <laughs> yeah. to go, like, to go, go for your vacation there. But like, in fact, the lot, like the switch is in there. I mean, they tape it up so you don't accidentally hit it. But if you wanted to, you could pull out the tape, sit there with the light on and nobody with your laptop watching movies and nobody would know otherwise. You know what I mean? Like there's you, no, you, you made it through the seven days. Did yeah. You, did you exercise in this well of darkness? Like so, it's, it sounds to me like I, I, I'm your new gym nickname, Joe, you know, I give people gym nicknames. Yeah. Your, your new gym nickname is Bane. <laughs> Dude, that is a huge honor. I love it. <laughs> that is similar. You need to have that. He, he came out of the darkness just How did you <laughs> gain 30 <laughs> pounds in seven days? It's incredible. I'll tell you another funny story. When you told me about that, I don't know if I ever told you this, Akshay. When you were on the phone with me telling me that, and and I apologize if I was a dick about it because I was probably like, what the fuck are you doing? But we get off the phone and Beans, Joe, this, this is like last year. He looks at me. He goes, Dad, it sounds like your friend needs a hug. And I started laughing so hard. He was like, he couldn't wrap his head. Like, what do you mean he's going to spend seven days in the darkness? I don't know. You can, you can call him up and offer him a hug. I'm not hugging that guy. Um, okay. Tell us, Love that. Tell us about – Tell us about the Dalai Lama, because that's that's another one. I don't even know Were you, you you said you've done these things. You've climbed. You've went across the ice peaks. Did you just like stumble across Shangri-La or Shambhala or whatever? <laughs> the Dalai Lama just happened to be walking across the ice cap. (laughs) (laughs) He was hanging out there like I don't even know. How do you get in touch with this person? Yeah. No, totally. I mean, so when I when I came up with the well, you know, to be very frank, my wife coined the word Fiervana. I had sort of been ex-wife, my, but I've been sort of living the lifestyle. She coined it. But when, you know, when I wrote the book and came up with this, uh, it was a very spiritual concept. Right. So I thought, who is the sort of the epitome of spiritual mastery to uh, validate this concept? And I was I had no platform, completely unknown, you know, like nothing. Uh, so I was like, you know, like it'd be cool to get the epitome of the spiritual mastery, the Dalai Lama, to endorse it. And initially when the thought kind of came up and I'm sharing this because I think there's valuable lessons about our own mindset around this is that, you know, I kind of sidelined it. Like, who am I? There's no way I'm an unknown. No way it could happen. And then as I started, you know, I, I started getting some pretty noteworthy endorsements for my book. Like my very first endorsement was from Seth Godin, who is, you know, an amazing human yeah. being, really admire him. And, uh, and that kind of inspired a bit of confidence. Like why not try what's the worst that could happen? So I, I ended up going to the dial on my website, try to e- email like him through the contact form there. Did, you know, nothing didn't hear back. So I did like hours of research and found one name and one 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 name and email from the Dalai Lama office, like the office of uh, His Holiness, and reached out to him. I shot a personal video for him, sharing everything that I've kind of been through, what I'm trying to do with Fiervana. You know, 100% of the profits in the book are going to charity. So really, the mission and, and the larger message. Shot the video, sent it to this monk. This guy connected me to like three other monks. Eventually, I find the right monk, and then this monk is like, "All right, we got your stuff. We'll check it out." And five months, I'm building the relationship with this monk, and the whole time, you know, as I would reach out, I wouldn't hear back after like writing him, emailing him. And my whole, my whole time, my mind is like, they probably hate my book. They're ignoring me. They hate me. <laughs> and this is really important were, because 
it's it, we we go through those moments of self doubt. We go through those yeah. moments of that, that inner conversation, but we don't have to let that define us. Like it's okay to feel those things. And throughout this five months, I'm constantly going through it. But I'm kind of saying, okay, you can feel, you know, you can have those thoughts, but you don't have to be defined by those thoughts. Let me follow up anyway. So I kind of kept building a relationship with this monk. And after five months of doing this, he wrote me an email saying, considering everything you've been through and your genuine desire to serve, I'll press your case. And um, you know, then a few weeks or whatever it was later, I got this beautiful letter in the mail with his holiness, a seal and his signature and a letter when, and they ended up writing the, uh, we got it framed up in the house now. And he ended up writing the forward, which was just a tremendous honor. Like yeah. I only asked for a one line endorsement, but he wrote the forward for my book. And I mean, personally and spiritually, it's a really means the world to me, but obviously also in terms of marketing the book, it was an absolute game changer yeah. as you might imagine. <laughs> so it was very so cool. Can, can you get him on the podcast? <laughs> I don't know if I could do that, but uh <laughs> You're like you're like you're like our our salvation here. You're like our pipeline. <laughs> man, call them up like, hey man, listen, hey, we this got- podcast that's trying to help people. They've got I mean, it just it just sounds so funny. But it also sounds for me on their end, I wonder if that's just like a test they put people through. Like I wonder yeah, that, that, that seems like a very like like, like Buddhist thing to do, right? Like you have to sit outside for three work. days with no encouragement <laughs> yeah, <exactly>. or food. <laughs> like yeah, how many emails this guy sent? Oh, only thirteen. No, no, he needs to send at least seventeen <laughs> more. You, <know? laughs> you gotta earn it. You gotta earn it exactly. <laughs> hey, everybody! This is Joe. I just want to say thank you so much for tuning in and catching part one of this interview with Akshay Nanavati. In the interest of keeping these more bite-sized, we decided we'd split this into two parts. So the next episode will be the continued conversation, part two with Akshay Nanavati. So tune in. You don't want to miss it. Is you the-